It doesn't happen very often. In fact, it's a pretty rare event in the game of baseball. But every once in a while, you're going to see someone who, their very first at bat in the major leagues, they hit a home run. Can you imagine a better way to start your career? First time up the plate, you knock it out of the park. But again, that doesn't happen very often. In fact, over the past 152 years of baseball, more than 18,900 different people have played this game at a professional level. And yet in the whole time, only 128 started off their career that way. First at bat, they hit a home run. So you talk about starting off with a bang. I mean, what a way to make your debut. First time up at the plate, you put it over the fence. And if you start that way, you think, wow, what's the future going to be like? I mean, could this be the promise of even greater things yet to come? Not necessarily. <laughs> Here's what's fascinating to me. Of the 128 players who began their life in baseball with a home run, 23 never hit a home run again. For the rest of their careers, never put another ball over the fence. And of the 123 players who began their life in baseball with a home run, only two so far. Only two have ever made it to the Hall of Fame. And one of those two was a pitcher, a fellow by the name of Hoyt Wilhelm. I mean, the only reason he has a bronze plaque hanging there in Cooperstown in the Baseball Hall of Fame is not because of what he did with the bat, is what he was able to do with his arm. So to me, the lesson is pretty clear. Just because you start well, there's no guarantee you're going to finish well. And that's a lesson that we need to learn as Christians. Just because you start well, there's no guarantee you're going to finish well. And it's a lesson that's being taught here in the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the scripture we're going to study today. Now, the Apostle Paul kind of set the stage for this way back in chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There we read about this young man who's a member of this church, this church in the city of Corinth. And this young man is committing a terrible sin, and he's shown no remorse for it. I mean, here is this young man doing something morally and spiritually. It's very shocking and acting like there's nothing wrong with it. Every Sunday he continues to gather with the church and worship and pray, and he's living like everything in his Christian life is just fine. And nobody in the church is saying anything about this. Nobody's doing anything about it. Nobody in the church is trying to stop him from committing this terrible sin. It's like nobody's taking this matter seriously. And the Apostle Paul is alarmed. And so in verse 6 of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not realize how a little bit of yeast can work its way through the whole batch of dough? Meaning that that one sin, especially this kind of sin, can end up ruining the whole church. So here's what you've got to do. You've got to get rid of that yeast. You've got to get rid of that evil so you can be the church that God wants you to be. And then to just really drive his point home, verse 7 of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, For Christ Jesus was our Passover lamb, the one who made a sacrifice for us. And you're thinking, why is he talking about that? Well, the Apostle Paul is making reference to something really significant that happened way back in the book of Exodus. 3,500 years ago, that very first Passover in Egypt, God's people took a candle and a broom. And that day, everybody in every one of their homes, everybody spent the whole day just sweeping the house, trying to get rid of every bit of yeast. And they were doing this because God had told them to do that. And God told them to do that because a mighty change was about to occur. God's people were about to leave Egypt. No longer are they being lost and trapped and stuck and just totally absorbed in this pagan culture. No. God was bringing them out, and God was bringing them out so they could be a new kind of people, a nation unlike any other nation on this planet, a group of people who now belong exclusively to the Lord. And what made this change possible was the lamb, the Passover lamb, the lamb that each one of the families was to take and sacrifice and then take the blood and apply it to the doorposts of their homes. So that night when the plague of death came passing through the lamb, that plague would pass over their homes. 
because a sacrifice had already been made on their behalf. Uh, 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 someone else had died in their place. So it was the lamb that was sacrificed that not only made it possible for the Israelites to leave Egypt, it was the lamb that was sacrificed that now made it possible for them to move on to a new and better kind of life. And the Apostle Paul says what that Passover lamb meant to the Israelites, that's what Jesus means to us. He's our Passover lamb. He died on the cross. He made that sacrifice. Not only that we could be forgiven of our sins, I mean, that's wonderful, but he made that sacrifice also so that we could move on to something much, much better, to a much better kind of life. Here's another way the Bible illustrates that same truth for us. Our life as a Christian should be similar to what happened to Lazarus in the book of John, chapter 11. That's a chapter where we see Lazarus walking out of a tomb. And he's walking out of the tomb because Jesus raised him from the dead. Well, that's exactly how the Bible describes our moment of conversion. It is a resurrection. Spiritually, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but Jesus raised us to a new life. So again, you talk about starting off with a bang. Your life as a Christian began with a resurrection. But that resurrection is just the beginning. There is so much more involved in the Christian life. So it was with Lazarus. It wasn't enough for Lazarus to come walking out of that tomb. Oh, yes, yes, when he came out of the tomb, he's alive again. And that's amazing and that's thrilling. But once he's out of that tomb, now he needs something else. Because as Lazarus comes out of the tomb, he's still all wrapped up in this burial cloth. So Jesus tells his friends to gather around him and unbind him. Remove everything that hinders so he can begin to enjoy this new life. I mean, it's hard to move around and do anything at all when you've got your arms and legs all wrapped up with these strips of linen cloth. You're all wrapped up like a mummy. So Jesus says, John chapter 11 and verse 44, remove the grave clothes and unbind them. Let him go so he can be that new man. Well, that's a picture of what should happen to us as a Christian. At the moment of our conversion, we are set free from the penalty of sin. The guilt is removed. We're forgiven of all the sins. We're no longer going to be condemned for any of the wrong that we have done. We're out of the tomb. But now that we live the Christian life, here's what we struggle with. Some of us have still got those old gray clothes on. We haven't yet broken free from the habits and customs and patterns of our past. For example, maybe some of you grew up in a Christian home, uh, home where everybody claimed to be Christian anyway. You know, every Sunday the whole family come to church, and over the years everybody in that home learned a lot about the Bible. And so years later you're kind of looking at this from the outside, you're watching this family think, wow, look at how religious they are. I mean, they never miss a Sunday. Every Sunday they're here, and boy, everybody in that home seems to know the Bible through and through. Aren't they spiritually mature? Not necessarily. You see, if you were to spend any time at all living inside that home, you might find something different. You might find an environment that's mean and critical. Every conversation filled with anger and sarcasm. Parents and siblings constantly at each other's throat. Every member of that home constantly complaining and putting each other down. And why? Because they're letting their emotions run their lives instead of letting God run their lives. What they talk about at church is never practiced at home. Out of the tomb, yes, but they still got the old grave clothes on. Maybe this is your experience. Brene, Brene Brown talks or uses this phrase, hitting the chandelier. She got this idea from her husband. He's a pediatrician. He says in all his years of working with children, he's noticed that sometimes the injuries hurt so bad that even when you just touch the injury very gently, they react. They jump. They jump so high they almost hit the chandelier. Well, so it is for some of us as Christians. We have issues in our past that we've never addressed. 
something bad happened back there, but over the years we've just kind of ignored it, buried it, just pretended like it was never there, and yet those wounds have never been healed. They still hurt. They're still painful. And so now years later when somebody, some other person comes along and barely touches on that issue, man, we go ballistic. We hit the ceiling. We hit the chandelier. You know, maybe as a child there was somebody who was supposed to be responsible for you, supposed to be watching out for you, and yet they broke their trust. At that critical moment when you really needed them to be there, they weren't. They abandoned you, and you've never forgotten that moment. Now, years later, even when something small happens, like somebody showing up late for lunch, you hit the chandelier. Or here you are having an argument with your spouse, and right in the middle of the argument, he gets up and walks out of the room. Now, he's only doing this because he's trying to cool off for a moment, come back so he can discuss this matter a little more thoughtfully, but you don't see it that way. When he gets up and walks out of the room, you feel like he's abandoning you. You just explode. You hit the chandelier. Or maybe when you were a child, you had a friend or some authority figure who just shamed you in a significant way. And years later, that wound is still there. Now, years later, when somebody comes along and just kind of teases you in a lighthearted way, or maybe your boss or your teacher tries to help you by correcting something you do, you blow up and you hit the chandelier. You see what's happening? You, 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 you're still, here you are, a Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for more than 25 years, and yet here you are still walking around with the old grave clothes on. You still haven't yet broken free from those habits and customs and patterns of your past. And that's dangerous. And it's dangerous for two reasons. Number one, it's kind of sad because this stuff is keeping you from the kind of life that God had in mind for you. And number two, it's dangerous because as Paul teaches here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Anytime that sin in our life is ignored, whether it was a sin committed against us or it was a sin that we ourselves committed, anytime that sin is ignored and never addressed, that sin can end up causing you to be disconnected from the Lord. Now, with all that background in mind, let's take a look at our scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Apostle Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. You, you need to be aware of this. This is important. I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, our fathers in the faith. He's talking about the Israelites, the people we read about back there in the book of Exodus. Those people who were once trapped in the land of Egypt. But now we're going to see how God brought them out, how God set them, uh, saved them and set them free. And the Apostle Paul says this is personal because we've got a connection to these people. We're reading about our family. This is a part of our family tree, our spiritual family tree. So take this seriously. Paul says, here's a group of people who once had a very close and tight connection with God, but somewhere along the way, they lost that connection. And if it happened to them, it could happen to us. So we need to understand, man, what went wrong back there? So watch, our ancestors in the faith were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. He's referring to that moment in time when God parted the waters of the Red Sea, and his people went safely through and Paul refers to this moment in time as a baptism. Verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses. At that moment in time, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Their life, their journey with God began with a baptism. Our life, our journey with God begins with a baptism. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, how can the Apostle Paul refer to this dramatic moment of history, God parts the waters of the Red Sea, when the Bible says as they walk through, they walk through on dry ground? Good question. That word baptism literally means to be immersed. And in a sense, they were. They had walls of water on either side. They had a cloud of water above them. They're completely surrounded with water. But I think the Apostle Paul has something even more important in mind. You see, baptism is that moment in time when you make a definitive 
break with your past. You leave something behind so that now you can move on to something new. That's the Israelites. On one side of the Red Sea, they are still slaves. They still belong to Egypt. But once they pass through the water, their life has changed. The days of bondage are over. It's all behind them. And now they begin this incredible journey to a new home, a promised land. Also, baptism is the point in time where you give your allegiance to a new leader. Again, the Israelites, on one side of the Red Sea, they are living under the control of Pharaoh. He's the master, and they are his slaves. But once God parts those waters and gives them this new opportunity, and the Israelites choose to respond, and they walk through, now they commit themselves to a new leader. Moses, God's anointed one, the one who's going to lead them to a new future. So what the Apostle Paul is trying to emphasize here is baptism is that moment of separation. It marks the end of one kind of life and the beginning of a new kind of life. So we begin to see there's a parallel between their experience with God and our experience with God. They were baptized. We're baptized. Here's some other similarities. Verses 3 and 4. They all ate the same spiritual food, meaning that food that was provided for them every day as they crossed the desert, the, the food that was provided for them in a supernatural way, the manna, the sweet-tasting bread that appeared every morning right outside their tent. Not only that, he gave them the same spiritual drink, meaning the water that was miraculously brought out of the rock. And the other occasions when God brought fresh water from a deep well, like it talks about in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, at every point of the journey, every day of the journey, there was God meeting their needs. So it says the last part of verse 4. It says, uh, and they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. He was walking with them. And that rock was Christ. Every stage of the journey, God is there. He is their rock in the sense that he's their source of support. He's supplying all their needs. He's their source of security and stability. So you step back and you think about this. Wow, with all that God is doing for these people every day, meeting their needs, with all the privileges and blessings that they're enjoying, they've got it made, right? Getting from Egypt to the promised land, that should be a simple thing. Uh, watch what happened, verse 5 says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the desert. Most never got to the promised land. They died before they got there. Why? Here's what went wrong, verse 6. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from doing what they did. What did they do wrong? They set their hearts on evil. They set their hearts on evil things. Have you ever seen this happen to a friend or a member of the family? They get caught up in this bad romance. They start dating somebody who's leading them in the wrong direction. And because they're so madly in love with this other person, they don't see what's happening to themselves. They don't see how this relationship is just ruining them. And no matter how many times you try to intervene, no matter how many times you try to pull them aside and talk to them and reason with them and warn them because they're so head over heels in love with this other person, they can't hear a thing you're saying. You feel helpless and you just kind of step back and watch as that other person continues to exert a bigger and bigger influence on their lives. And you watch as this friend of yours or this member of your family just becomes more and more distant from you. More and more they're taking on a lifestyle that's just so foreign to everything they were once taught. And eventually you hear yourself saying, I don't feel like I know them anymore. They look like and sound like somebody else. That's not the person I once knew. They've changed. They've completely changed. And why? Because they lost themselves in somebody else, somebody they never should have been attached to. They set their hearts on the wrong things. Well, that's what's happening here. Verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. We see four different, four different examples of how that happened to the Israelites. So, down in verses 11 to 12, Paul says, here's the lesson. Here's the word of warning he gives to us. Verse 11. 
These things happened to them as examples. And they were written down for us to warn us. The ones in whom the culmination of the ages have come. Here's the warning, verse 12. If you think you're standing firm, be careful. Because in that very moment, you could fall. Back in 2004, during one of the presidential debates, George Bush was asked this question. Mr. President, over the past four years, you've made thousands of decisions that have affected millions of lives. Could you please give me three examples where you came to realize you made the wrong decision? And what did you do to correct it? Whoa, that's a tough question. It's terrifying. Because nobody likes to admit the mistakes that they've made. And yet, as painful as that question might be, that's a good question to ask. Because how many times in the past were we in a position where we thought we had it all figured out, and yet later on down the road we realized, no, we really didn't. But in that moment in time, because of our arrogance and pride, because we weren't being careful, we thought, oh, I've already got this all figured out, and we just pressed on full steam ahead, and then we stumbled and we fell, and when we went down, we brought a lot of other people down with us. That's why the Bible says, if you think you're standing firm, because you could still fall. That's why we're here today. That's why we gather every Sunday morning because we realize only God can keep me on my feet. I need this connection to him and I want to make sure that my connection with God is close and tight. Anybody who's worked with Alcoholics Anonymous will tell you that one of the keys to conquering the bottle is you gotta be honest. That's why in every one of their meetings, first thing off the bat, everybody just takes a moment to stand up and tell the truth about themselves. Hi, my name is Joe. I'm an alcoholic. Or hi, my name is Beth. I am an alcoholic. Everybody understands that before the problem can be healed, the problem has to be confessed. You have to take the mask off before any kind of change can occur. Wouldn't it be great if every Sunday morning we come together as a church, we could be honest about the things we're struggling with? Hi, my name is Mike, and I'm afraid of losing my job. Or hi, my name is Laura, and I'm at a place where I can't even pay any of my bills. Or hi, my name is Jennifer, and I have a teenage daughter who won't talk to me anymore. I don't understand what's going on. Or hi, my name is Adam, I'm scared of dying. Or hi, my name is Javier, and... I don't know, I don't have the first clue of what it means to be a good father because my dad left us when I was only five. Or hi, my name is Meg and I hate working in the nursery because I'm just not good with babies. But over the years I've been afraid to tell you that because I don't want you to think I'm some kind of a bad person. Wouldn't it be great if every Sunday we got together, we could just be honest about the things we're struggling with so that we could realize and everybody else around us could realize, hey, it's not unchristian to have problems. It's not unchristian to hurt. It's not unchristian to struggle with sin. It's not unchristian to have a difficult marriage. It's not unchristian to make mistakes as you try to raise your children. It's not unchristian to admit, I'm not perfect. In fact, that's why we come together on Sunday morning to confess, we're not God, but we know who he is. And we're here today to confess our need for his help. Only he can keep us standing firm. That's why every Sunday morning, we make time for communion because as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, here's a moment in time where we can be honest, honest with ourselves and honest with God. Here's an opportunity to take the mask off and stop pretending to be something we're not. 
Here's an opportunity to be real with God so he can become real to us. God, I stumble. I fall in so many different ways. God, please put me back on my feet again. God, I want to draw near to you, and I want you to draw near to me. So this morning, before we eat the bread and we drink the cup, let's pause for a moment and just pray. And let's recognize our need for the Lord. And then let's just fix our eyes upon Jesus and realize again what he can do for us. Let's pray. God, have mercy. Please, have mercy on us. God, we're sinners. We should be better than what we are, but we're not. And yet, Lord, that's the very reason we're, we are here today. We, we don't want to stay the same. We really do want to change. But, God, we recognize only you can bring that change about. So, God, we're here to ask for your help, for your grace, your wisdom, your strength. God, bring us out of the darkness. Bring us back into your light again. God, renew and restore our relationship with you. God, put us back on our feet again. And we ask you for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.